This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim. And my name is Tom. And this is episode 51 on almost our three-year anniversary. Actually, actually, um, on the 27th of March, 2013, we covered Punishment Park. Good grief. It's, <laughs> yes, it's been, it's been quite a ride. Definitely. Um, I think personally, in that time, my life has changed massively actually mm-hmm. um from i was i think i was kind of like living in my old house with my old girlfriend and kind of had a part-time job and was doing all this kind of things and now i uh, have moved on from that live in my own house have another girlfriend and i think my life's been through quite a lot actually it's strange how so much can happen in three years i think yeah i can on second that i've also gotten a new girlfriend i've moved three times in the last three Jesus. years lived in a different country uh yeah my life's taken quite a different direction since uh, we started so and yeah, it all started off as a simple i think as you emailed me wasn't it and said uh, from i think you emailed me from a web address that said something moc cast at gmail and proposed this idea yeah. and yeah. It, the, the rather <laughs> strange thing was i seem to remember having the idea of covering masters of cinema releases on the 24 frames cast and um i think you kind of like uh Got, got me to it but um no it's been an interesting three years i think we have done quite well not wishing to blow our own trumpet no but absolutely it was around like episode 13 with uh james marsh when we covered onibaba and that was when you sort of had to go away for a good six months or so yes uh, where you were only able to join us for a couple of apps and i remember making a choice at that time to change change kind of the format slightly where I was reaching out to more like film critics than more so than like people we've become friendly with through previous podcasts and communities we were a part of. Yeah, it's a strange one because when, when, when we envisaged this idea, I thought it would just be me, me and yourself talking about films. And um, yeah, obviously I had to kind of like take a hiatus to kind of get things in order from from my perspective. But I, I definitely mm-hmm. think doing the guest route has helped us, and it's, yes. it's also definitely brought a lot of thing, you know, brought a lot of very interesting debates that we've had. I mean, for example, having Laura Mulvey on the show, I think, was a you know, massive coup, really. And as I said at the mm-hmm. time, I I didn't really think that when you said, "Oh, I've, you, you, you'd emailed her," I was like, "Oh, well, you know, Jesus Christ." <laughs> like this is going to happen but i think it definitely adds something and i've always been i guess i just thought we would be able to kind of wing it ourselves but going mm-hmm. down that route i think has definitely been a positive and it's it's interesting because sometimes i think hearing people who's like when you have they have an opinion on film or a view of film which is completely different or just kind of expands on your own is always really interesting and in terms of guests, I think definitely, and I, I, I can't say this again, really, but I think you're the one who kind of reaches out to people. I don't have much to do with that at all. I, don't, I can't think, I can't think of a single person who I've suggested. But I, it's kind of like when you say I'm, I've invited blah blah, and I'm like, I'm like, well, who's this? And I check them out. And I think, oh Christ, yeah, this could be a really interesting conversation. I think so mm-hmm. far it has worked brilliantly. Yeah, and I also think for my own personal sakes that when at times when there's no guests arrive uh, or when we have no guests i think i'm more uh, it's almost like 
uh, I feel more free to do whatever. Yeah. You know. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, so we can we can even play with the format even more when it's just you and me. Yes, no, definitely. Yeah. Uh, another big move that we've made is that we join Criterion Casts on September twenty second, twenty fourteen. Um, with the release of Simon Killer. But we had been talking with Ryan about joining since episode 12 or 13, I think. And uh, he was on on episode 14. But um, do you do, I don't, it's just regular circumstances, I think, that it took us about a year to sort everything yeah, out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was, it was one of those ones, I, was, I, was, I called it the Odyssey period of my yeah. life. Um, you know, just to clarify, I was having to uh, move out and all this kind of thing and go from kind of living in a you had a house and that kind of stuff and I had to move out get another job and all that kind of thing and just stuff just got put on the back burner I think I said to you at the time I just like I was kind of like drowning in commitments really and the kind of like <laughs> podcasting seemed to be something which is bordered on a luxury but the interesting about that was I mean I, I've listened to the Criterion cast from almost day one I think and to have to go on their feed and to kind of be part of all that and there's a few of us now as well um, mm. on there and I think it's a nice selection of podcasts for people yeah. to listen to and i know it's quite criterion centric but it is i mean the, the variety of films that are discussed and I, the, the fact that there is kind of like a people kind of do tend to kind of expand just on the criterion collection you, you hear people talking you know, especially david blakesley i think he's one of the most eloquent speakers about film Definitely. I've, I've ever come with and, and david has one of those voices that in the event of a global catastrophe. <laughs> Should David come on and just say, look, everyone just chill out. Everything's going to be fine. I would so readily believe what he was telling me. Yeah. Yeah, but to hear that kind of different mix of opinions and whatnot, I, I think I, it, it's great. And I, I think it's a, it's a good thing, the criteria cast must be, the way it's evolved as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. Since, since its inception, I think is pretty brilliant. I would yeah. like to hear David. more Travis back on it though, but. Yeah, that's true. that's true. And Travis is another one. He's got the coolest voice ever. <laughs> but, yeah. Certainly a small voice. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any like um, uh, favourite episodes or moments now that we're talking about three years of Master Cinema Cast? Possibly the one we did on Silent Running, I seem to remember, was incredibly good fun. Yeah. yeah. I really enjoyed doing that. And um, obviously having Laura on was, was some ink of a cue. And, 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 you know, uh, just a, a thorough... Uh, Kind of like one of those ones where you feel kind of like intellectually humble. I think I said was at the time, but certainly I felt like having one. But um, no, the, the, yeah, definitely. I think the the silent running episode was a hand up for me, and having Wes Anthony as well on um, to talk about uh, Touch, of, Touch evil. of Evil. Yeah, and the weird yeah. thing about Touch of Evil, I've, I've always thought at the end of that film was like they well as, as corrupt as they, as they get the man, and I think Wes said something which kind of changed my opinion of how I felt about that film. And that yeah. was quite interesting to have as well. So, <laughs> uh, I remember the the salesman app quite fondly, actually, yeah. because I remember uh, I didn't have anything written down, and my thoughts on it were quite like undecided. But just through our discussion and going through it in my mind over and over as we were discussing it, uh, it kind of elevated the film in my eyes. And I usually write notes like quite heavily, but it was nice feeling going out of that episode feeling like it was a complete episode and I was satisfied with it. So Yeah, there's nothing better, I think, when you have a preconceived... When you have an idea on something and, and someone comes along or someone says something that changes your opinion. It's actually mm -hmm. quite thrilling about that, I find, actually. You know, um, yeah. the only thing I can think of recently is uh, I was listening to the Sam Harris podcast and he was talking about 
um, gun control in America. And he said a few things which completely changed my opinion of gun control mm. in America. And I was like, shit, you know, perhaps there is more to this than I thought, or perhaps there is another perspective. Yeah. And I think certainly in instances like that, it's, it's, it's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, Metropolis is another one that I want to point out that I'm quite fond of, mainly because it was so interesting, like talking about psychoanalysis and the Jungian aspects of it, which I really hadn't thought of before. Uh, and our discussion on the Moroder version was quite fun as well. So Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's I, I, I still... That, that's one of the rarities you have to put your hands and say, I was wrong. <laughs> and I think I, I, I still can't quite get my head around what's going on there. I need to. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to work out when I will watch the Moroder version again. And I, I, it just doesn't seem to... I, I can't seem to think of a time where it's going to happen, but... No, no. It's, a... it's more of a curiosity, like we, yeah. like we said, yeah. No, definitely. Uh, okay, but moving on to the news bit, it's quite a heavy, loaded section. This one, because yeah, I think uh, Eureka um, and MOC they announced uh, twelve releases or something. It was ridiculous. I, I couldn't keep up. To be brutally honest with you, I was like, "What the hell is this?" And is this? Yeah. What- which one does this belong in? And Exactly, yeah. Uh, but I think uh, if we start with the acquisitions first, the one that hasn't received a, a release date yet. So yeah, we have um, Alex Ross Perry's Queen of Earth. Alex Ross Perry of uh, Listen Up Philip, of course. But um, I've heard quite good things about this one. And um, this stars Elizabeth Moss uh, in his uh, second film of his, uh, and also Patrick Fugit of the um, uh, Almost Famous fame. Yes, so. I know nothing about this. So it's one of those, no. it's one of those, rare, it's one of those ones where I'm, I'll, I'll go with it. Yeah, definitely. Next up, we have uh, Naomi Kawase's Arn, which translates to Sweet Bean. I remember seeing uh, Kawase's The Morning Forest, which was like um, a woman moving out back to her parents or something or going back for vacation and just very, very atmospheric the way she like discovered this uh, this forest and how it kind of um, made comments on her mood. Uh, so very interesting filmmaker, but I haven't seen a lot of her. So No, again, it's another one. I know nothing about it, so... I think it's, it wasn't Khan, this one, or either this one or the previous one. So the third film is uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Creepy. Uh, they have another Kurosawa film in the selection, which is The Journey to the Shore, of course. Um, and also the one that I talked about, uh, Pulse, uh, which I would love, oh, The Cure, sorry, which I would love to see. But, uh, and Tokyo Sonata, of course. But, the creepy film, I haven't uh, heard anything about this one, but I'm definitely looking forward to his return to the more horror aspects of his uh, film. Yeah, definitely. Um, again, it's another one where I felt sort of like, I don't know. I felt a bit humble this time around because I was like thinking, I don't know anything about these films and, you know, I really, really should. But, mm-hmm. I mean, as we said before, I, I, I'm, I'm all for having more contemporary films in there which are yeah. struggling to, well, which not so much struggling, but ones which probably wouldn't get the normal distribution. Definitely. Um, another one that falls into that line is Tobias Nuller's Alloys, uh, which uh, was a part of the Berlin Film Festival this year, but uh, another one that I, I hadn't even heard of this filmmaker nor this film. So definitely interesting uh, choices they've come up with now. So. Definitely. 
But moving on to the five releases of the Master of Cinema line that we've probably had out of. Uh, first up, we have uh, Robert Altman's That Cold Day in the Park, which will join Master of Cinema in, on the 20th of June this year. Uh, always love Altman, so definitely this one will be uh, interesting to watch. I haven't seen this one before. Uh, I think it's one of his minor minor works. In yeah, it is certainly. I it's one of the ones where I went through a massive Robert Altman phase um, many years ago, and this is one of the ones that you couldn't seem to get hold of. So, mm. for, for, as far as I'm aware, I don't seem to think it came out on VHS or anything like that. So, it's yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Um, do you have like a, when he went through that uh, Altman phase? What, what kind of stood out to you? Um, I, I definitely, I, I, I would probably say my all-time favourite Altman film is McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Mm-hmm. Um, that would relate to the film we talk about today. Yeah, today. oh god, definitely. Um, and it, McCabe and Mrs. Miller is one of, one of those films where I had the pleasure of, of watching it first time around at the cinema. And I remember being pretty blown away by it. And at the time, as as film geekery as it sounds, I was well into the cinematographers. I think it's Vilmos uh, Zimsmond. The, Zygmunt. Zygmunt, that's the one. Yeah, I, I was well into his films. And I remember yeah. this being on a list of the ones which he had um, shot. And uh, yeah, it, it kind of amazed me. And I was always a little bit kind of... Everyone said to me I had to go and watch MASH, which I, I was... I was kind of surprised by MASH that I didn't... I, I loved the TV series of MASH, but I wasn't so keen on the film. And another one, which... And I, I recently bought the Blu-ray, actually, um, for about six quid, I think, was uh, The Long Goodbye. Mm-hmm. And that was another one. But it... it he's one of those directors... He, he, he seems to get more bitter and twisted the older he gets, I find. Kind of culminating The Player, which is just a horrible film. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't mean... As in bad, I just mean it's most. It's just so mean. I think, and uh, I think we discussed it with Nashville as well, didn't we? When we did that kind of like best of, which I yeah. thought was was which was a uh, yeah kind of a, a quite a nasty look at country music and just how exploitative it was. But he's he's definitely. Uh, I mean, Gosford Park as well. I don't know if you've been back to that recently. Yeah, with um, uh, Judy Dench. Yeah, and, uh, that's another. Yeah, one. That's, yeah, another yeah. that's a really underrated film. I seem to recall. Yeah, but, I love that film. Yeah, he's. It's an interesting filmography, but I mean, it's a lot of them aren't available, and to have more of them out there. I mean, can you think of any ones which were kind of particularly standing out? Um, Gosford Park definitely stands out for me. It was one of the first films I remember that I bought on DVD. Oh, actually. Gotcha. Yeah, same as it was. It was a very rare. I, in fact, I even remember when it came out on DVD. It was like twenty-two quid. Oh wow! I was like, Jesus Christ! You know, and it, it, it in the age of Downton Abbey as well. Yeah, <laughs> go back and watch it because it was written by Julian Fellows, of course. And um, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think um, from what I understand, there's meant to be a, a uh, spin-off series from Gosford Park, written okay. by Julian Fellows. So it'd be interesting to know how much of the kind of the DNA of that found its way into Downton Abbey. But hmm. yeah. It, it was a yeah, strange film, but yeah, good, pretty great. Another one, of course, uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, but also The Player, uh, which I saw in uh, Film Studies. Yeah. Uh, which just, uh, I don't think I've seen it before. And uh, yeah, uh, I love that film. 
Uh, very much so. I mean, the fact that at the end of it, I think you can hear on the soundtrack it going like, I mean, it's so, it's so, <laughs> it's so wrong, but it's brilliant at the same time. Um, okay, so the the next box or the next release that we're getting is a, an update to a DVD box set, which is Buster Keaton: The Complete Short Films, nineteen seventeen to nineteen twenty three. Uh, this will be a four disc Blu ray, which will be released on the eighteenth of July, and uh, the DVD box set it includes thirty two films uh, over seven hundred minutes in extras. Um, audio commentary on six of those and a 184 page booklet so this will probably be a sure contender for the year release of the year okay so i think i need to kind of caveat this in a bit <laughs> way. right this sounds amazing yeah like just manner from film heaven but god i wish i really wanted this but I simply can't. I have not reached the point in my life where I'm that bothered by Buster Keaton and the likes of Charlie Chaplin mm. and Lon Chaney and all that kind of thing. And I really wish I was. But it's one of those things I think, yeah, that sounds amazing. And I have the I have the DVD set of this. Um, okay. And I have watched it and stuff like that. But yeah, it, it still hasn't connected with me yet, mm. uh, sadly enough. And it goes back to that, my, my, this kind of that nagging film guilt i have about which is that i just simply don't pay attention enough to kind of silent cinema Mm. i don't watch enough of it i don't know enough about it i don't appreciate it as much as i should and it kind of irritates me because i really do consider myself to be someone who loves film and Mm -hmm. to kind of willfully ignore such an important phase of film uh annoys me a little bit I feel a bit of a fraud in many <laughs> respects. And I know we're having like John Jansen on soon again, hopefully to talk about uh, Birth of a Nation, possibly. And that's another film where it's obviously so important in the history of film. Yeah, I'm still to kind of appreciate it as fully as much as I can. I hope between now and then I will kind of come to, to, to um, you know, some, a different opinion of it or some more kind of interesting conclusions relating to it. But I, I love the idea of this Buster Keaton box set and I will obviously get it and I'll watch it and I, I'm looking forward to that. But it still doesn't quite do it for me, this type of cinema mm. yet. Or that phase in film history. No, I can understand that. I don't think I'm quite as on board either, uh, especially with um, the type of physical comedy. Um, that's usually not my film. But I do enjoy some of like Harold Lloyd, some of Chaplin, and I can enjoy certainly some of Keaton's. But I'm not the one to like jump for joy uh, that every uh, short film of his is available. But this is certainly like a gift to cinephiles and just to have it on Blu-ray and all that that entails. I think just in terms of doing a service for the cinephile community this is uh bar none excellent so yeah definitely definitely and that's it it's one for the purists i hope i can i hope it can connect with me you know i hope i can make that jump from being Mm -hmm. like to really really getting on board with it but yeah yeah i I look forward to it Mm -hmm. 
Next up, we are getting Fedora, uh, one of Billy Wilder's most poignant films, a Master of Cinema describes it as, to release on a dual format on the 8th of August. Um, Fedora is actually one of the few Wilder films I haven't seen. It's one of his later ones, and I think I've stopped just short of it, actually. Have you seen it? No, I haven't, I, but I know the post is amazing. Okay. Yeah, I, I, we, I don't think they've released uh, the cover for um, the release yet, but hopefully they'll use the poster. So yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting because it's like at, at the end of his career, like William Holden. It's made in like nineteen seventy eight, I think. Seventy uh, seven. Mm, oh yeah. right, okay. And um, it's got like William Holden. I mean, you know, bear in mind William Holden was kind of like one of the biggest stars of the sixties, and mm. I, 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 I don't really remember much of him after um, Bridge on the River Kwai. So mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen much of his later work, but I'd be really, really interested uh, mm. to, to see you know, to see to see his later work. And uh, it's interesting because, like, I think like Billy Wilder was making films up until the nine, like the late nineteen seventies. You just don't associate someone from old school Hollywood with making mm-hmm. films at that late career. Yeah, I mean, like some like Franklin J. Scheffner, who was making kind of like the Boys from Brazil. You know, he he was kind of. The, the, you know, Planet of the Apes and Patton and films like that, and he kind of like cropped, you know, turned up in the late seventies making kind of not low budget but films which I don't think had, I think they were kind of slightly lost in time, as it were. They they they, they were kind of like old directors working in a new Hollywood, and I'd be really interested to see this one actually, just to yeah. kind of see where he was at in his career. Obviously, at towards the latter end, but how is he operating in a in a Hollywood that's changed massively from the time when he was at his peak? Mm-hmm. I seem to remember. Um, I think Western Anthony and Ruby Abias show. Um, what was it called? Uh, the Autocast. It was indeed. Yeah, um, and they went through Billy Wilder's filmography, and I seem to remember that in his later stages, the the quality of his films was quite up and down. But mm. I think Fedora was one of the few that they were quite keen on. So it will be interesting to watch this one again. It's an, and it's another one where I've never heard this being released on any other format. So mm-hmm. absolutely. Next, we have got F.W. Murnau's five films, uh, Schloss Vögelod, Phantom, The Letzter Man, uh, Grand Duke's Finances and Tartuffe, uh, which will be released on the 22nd of August. And obviously, I'm very excited for this one. Faust, excellent film. Sunrise, excellent film. Nosferatu, excellent film. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Murnau yeah. M- M- is yeah, probably one of my favourite directors. Um, mm-hmm. I, re- I really do. There's, there's something about his films which I've always found them strangely unsettling and eerie and yeah. massively atmospheric. So, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this one. I think like some of his films uh, or some of the films in this box set have been released on DVD like uh, The Letzter Man, uh, which is The Last Laugh, uh, and also Tartuff. I think both of those are DVD Master Cinema releases. Yeah, I'm not I'm not too sure, to be honest with you. I, I, it's one of those, again, where I was kind of like, when it, when it was announced, I was sort of thinking, yes, you know, I... I was hoping that it seemed I, I would love there to be like a you know a definitive Murnau box set. 
mm. and chuck them all in there. And I know, you know obviously we're going to kind of get a few uh, f- few films that haven't been quite you know, haven't been released before. But um, it's just one who again it's it's this kind of I feel like they're kind of so much kind of um, catering at the moment for like the, the complete kind of film nerds. Yeah. You know, so it's like kind of like it's kind of chucking us these bones of brilliance that we kind of you know it's it's a strange one. I think we'll probably get onto it, but I mean, I, I'm assuming we're going to talk about Criterion. Yeah, yeah, quite soon. We will. And I, I think there's a. I don't know if it's kind of a case of upping the game, mm-hmm. as it were. But I certainly, I'm, you know, I'm glad they're doing it, as it were. Yeah, I see now that um, Schloss Vogelöd, like the Haunted Castle and Phantom and the Grand Duke's Finances, uh, have been released on DVD before. Um, so this is a pure Blu-ray upgrade, but I'm like really excited to see that they are getting a Blu-ray release, of course. Finally, <laughs> the last release um, is The Flight of the Phoenix, starring Richard Attenborough and James Stewart, 12th of September. I've seen like the remake of this one, which is, eh, it's okay, uh, but I'm really looking forward to watching the original. And the cover for this one looks absolutely amazing. Yeah, I love the cover. Um, I would say, actually, this is, a, having seen the original, um, it's one of those bizarre films where I've, this and Joe Castaway with um, Oliver Reed. Mm-hmm. This is that and this film are films I've only ever seen the last half of, oh. and it was on Sky the other day, Flight of the Phoenix, and they managed to to watch it. And um, it's, it's a pretty good film actually. I mean, I've not seen the remake. Um, I don't know. I want to seek it out. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I, I don't know. To say I'm not sure if it's deserving of a Masters of Cinema release hmm. because i mean let's i mean let's think about what what is a masters of cinema release yeah. it's it's hard to define isn't it what yeah. what what is worthy of end of entering the masters of cinema collection i'm not sure it's something which i would think this film is essential to be seen or essential mm-hmm. to kind of go through this you know upgrade process and be remastered and released on blu-ray i'm not I'm, I'm not entirely sure whether i'd put it in that category but it's an interesting film it's really entertaining yeah i know that much i mean i yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it but i mean that kind of leads us into a discussion about what has happened with criterion because obviously they've expanded their brand to the uk with their sony titles and it definitely puts a strain on the market, uh, them being such a huge like home cinema power. And I can't really see how Masters of Cinema can keep such a similar profile to Criterion, uh, seeing as now they will contend for most of the same titles. <laughs> and how, how the two can survive. I was, yeah. ma- I was massively surprised by this. Uh, you, in mm-hmm. fact, I think you texted me, I think, didn't you? Or you, yeah. you messaged me. And I was like, has he been drinking again? <laughs> Is he back on the glue? You know, uh, and, and then I, I think literally, I think you said that Sight and Sound came through. And, yeah. and the announcement was in that. And I remember reading in Sight and Sound. And I was so surprised by this. And kind of a little bit like, oh, shit. Did, did, is there enough room, really, in the market, and th- let's just kind of take a, a back back statement. What this shows is that 
the death of physical media is very much being prematurely trumpeted. Absolutely, yeah. Because let's face facts, you would not enter... Criterion Sony would not enter into this if they didn't think it was a viable commercial move. Hmm. You would not release films like Only Angel Have Wings, Grey Gardens, Macbeth, It Happened One Night, Tootsie and Speedy. If you thought there were people out there who were going to make it worth your financial input to do it. And as soon as it happened, I was like, shit, it, it kind of makes sense. And, and I, I, as I understand the reason Criterion haven't done it is because of licensing issues and how it's going to work is I think it's going to be Sony presents the Criterion collection. I think I'm right in saying that. Yeah. I don't think it's... You know, but obviously, it's got that Criterion badge on it. Yeah. But... I was, and they will have, like, everything will be similar, except you have the BBFC uh, rating. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's marginal, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. But I was quite shocked that this actually happened. And what I think it made me realise was the fact that, we, we in, in, especially in Britain, and we're talking, you know, thing, but people often whinge about um, the fact that Criterion wasn't here before. But what I would actually say to that is, um, Arrow and Master Cinema have done a pretty good job bridging the gap anyway. Yeah. Like right now, you can go to FOP in Manchester and you can pick up a load of Arrow releases that cost six quid uh, mm-hmm. that are the same as you get on Criterion. You can go and pick up Thief in Manchester right now for six quid. Mm-hmm. And it's as good. I, I've got both. I've got both versions. They're both perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got great features on there. And Master Cinema... I was obviously picked. There's there's a lot of crossover. For example, Arrow's going to release The Human Condition, which is one of, you know, a, a Criterion release. And um, mm. they're going to release it on Blu-ray quite soon. Um, you know, Master Cinema haven't done... I'm sorry, Criterion haven't done that yet. And there was this, a whole load of crossover. Yeah. And when this announcement was made and when I saw these releases, I was sort of like, I hope this doesn't see Arrow and Masters of Cinema kind of marginalised and pushed to the side. I hope that there is room for all of those in the world. And I, I do genuinely believe there is. I, I, what interests me more, perhaps, from the Criterion side of things is them going through their back catalogue and releasing yeah. titles that haven't been put on over. But again, if you go back to the first ever Criterion release was The Grand Illusion. Well, Studio Canal put out a Blu-ray of that. Criterion haven't. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's one of the best-looking Blu-rays I've ever seen. It's stunning. It doesn't need anything else doing to it. Mm. I hope what we see is Criterion going through their back catalogue and identifying titles which haven't had a release here, and obviously just kind of like mirroring the American release. I don't like the idea, the fact that there might be this kind of scramble for titles. That does bother me a little bit. Yeah. It seems like they have been competing for new titles, um, both Criterion and Master of Cinema. I think Master of Cinema, or Kevin uh, from the Eureka Entertainment, he has uh, stated on Blu-ray or something that they have been contending and losing quite a few titles over the last year. So and it, uh, have you followed that um, that debate about Criterion and female directors? No, I haven't. Uh, Tina Hasenia, 
um, she wrote an article um, writing about how there are so few female directors on the Criterion label. And it basically goes to show that most people's perception seems to be that Criterion is the be-all and all of like cinephile community, where if you if you want to know about film history, all you have to do is go to Criterion. But obviously there's a lot of other DVD labels out there which have excellent films in their libraries, which also feature female directors and whatnot. So, but there's a perception in the public that Criterion is like top tier, that uh, those are the ones that count. And I'm, I'm just feeling that if Criterion comes to the UK or when Criterion comes to the UK now, they will they will take the top spot quite easily yeah it's it's difficult to say but i fear, i fear it at least so yeah yeah i mean criterion comes with um a perception it's a massive yeah, it's, yeah. it comes with perception of being yeah. like you are somehow in the hands of people who know more f- about film than you do like mm-hmm. there yeah, criterion makes you feel you're being educated about film Absolutely. And it's a great thing. I love it. Yeah. But it's, I would always say, one of the things I love about Master Cinema and one of the reasons why you know, we do this podcast is that as, as controversially as it sounds or, or a little bit kind of, perhaps I'm being slightly territorial on this band. But I, I, <laughs> no. No, no. But I, I always feel like Master Cinema is a little bit more bolder perhaps when yeah. it comes to its selection of films. Like, Absolutely, yeah. There's one animated film in the Criterion Collection. There are two now, so... Shut up, Joachim! There's <laughs> <laughs> two! <laughs> but go, go and... You know, the Master of the Mark... Yeah, they, they, they do cover animation. They've been doing that from day dot, really. Yeah. And, you know, it was... Master of the put out Showa long before it was a twitch in Criterion's pants. Mm-hmm. So I, I, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. I really, I, I, I really want. This is such a great thing. I was so excited when I found it out, and then I was kind of like, oh, I, you know, I sort of, I thought, hmm, mm. and I don't like the idea of Arrow and Master Cinema, Master Cinema especially, having to scrap and fight. And perhaps it, you know, perhaps one one of the reasons why we're seeing a few more newer releases as it were for Master Cinema um, you know, certainly films that come out you know theatrical it, releases yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. is because there is this kind of scramble going on and perhaps it will mm-hmm. force people a little bit hard you know a little bit more to dig a little deeper but it's it's an interesting one um, my yeah my, my initial excitement has been tempered somewhat and the price the price point as well I think um, is quite telling, yeah. Because again, I don't want to sound like I'm. I don't. I don't in fact, I don't even care that I'm going to sound like I'm trying to kind of promote Master Cinema. It's just half of what we do. The price point for Master Cinema releases is, is so good. Mm-hmm. It's a worthy transaction. You know, for twelve, thirteen quid. I think, that, and and especially if you wait two, three months, most of those releases drop below ten pounds. Yeah, for what you get, you, you normally get a pristine restoration of a really interesting film, some great features in a booklet. Now these Criterion's 
have kind of popped up in the market and the pre-order price on Amazon is $17.99 for Tootsie (laughs) which is I like Tootsie it's a fun film it's a genuinely fun film Um, Dustin Hoffman does look a bit like my aunt in the 1980s in it which is kind of scary but it's yeah that's a lot of I think that's a lot of money yeah 18 quid and I, you know, perhaps, perhaps I'm being a bit tight-fisted about this if perhaps they were to send me screeners I might reevaluate my opinion on this but <laughs> it's, it's it's still you know, 18 pounds that price point I think that's a lot of money um, I agree yeah. to, to kind of wade in on this market and it, it'd be interesting to see how it goes because let's not forget we've only had these April releases announced so far yeah, and I don't know whether or not this is very much something like they're testing the water to see where it goes. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah, if we, are we going to be get monthly releases or? But I mean, the one thing this will save is, I mean, I import my Criterion's the godforsaken Royal Mail handling fee, which <laughs> only seems to strike on films that I don't want, like tiny furniture, which I had to pay. At eighteen pounds and twelve pounds on top of that is a sodding handling fee, which basically consists of someone putting a sticker on an envelope saying "handling fee." <laughs> It'll hopefully negate that. Yeah. But it, yeah, these are interesting times. Yeah, it's um, a threat to masses cinema, but it's a win for us cinephiles as a community. I mean, is it is it a threat? Do you think, do you, do you, do you, and this is what I'm saying. Is it a threat? Yeah. If the yeah. release, if the releases are good enough, it's the old field of dreams, yeah. isn't it? You know, is it book them and they will come or whatever he says. It's that if the releases are good enough, people will pick them up. Yeah, that's true. But Criterion has uh, a lot more finances to snatch up new titles with. Yeah, I mean, this is this, which is basically how they are going to take over. Bigger portions of the market, I think. Yeah, I mean, let's let's think about this. Criterion was kind of like, it's the, it was the underdog, wasn't it? It it was the anti 20th century Fox. It was the anti Paramount putting out the Transformers. This is why we loved Criterion. Absolutely. And now I feel like they've become that indie label that signed Adele. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're now like going on this kind of like they're kind of muscled in. It's the major independent, yeah, coming to kind of crush the little man. And again, they must have seen the fact they must have looked at this market and gone, right, there is potential here. Yeah, because you just don't, you simply don't invest that much time, money, and effort into something if it's not going to make you money. And that's what gives me hope. The likes of Masters of Cinema and Ario will be able to survive in this world. But Christ, it's going to get expensive. And I swear to God, if Arrow put spine numbers on their releases, <laughs> I'm gonna ha- I'll be homeless. Yeah, I hope it doesn't happen, man. Um, I mean, let's be honest, I, I, how many of these new criterions have you ordered? Uh, I've only ordered one just to test the water, uh, just to see um, how it looks. Uh, because if it doesn't... If it doesn't look or if it doesn't contain the same features as the US release and it doesn't have like the spine number, I won't continue buying the UK criterion. 
but if it lines up well um, and if it's a mirrored release, uh, I'll probably try to pick up most of them. But again, finances are tight, man. I mean, this is the thing as well, because we've had this kind of um, different territories get screwed over by different transfers. Yeah. So, I mean, I know Tootsie, I think I'm, I'm pretty certain Tootsie's been out on Blu-ray in Region B before. Okay. And if it's, you know, if it isn't the, the, exactly the same, I'll be pretty dis- disappointed. Yeah. But we shall see. Okay. We shall see indeed. But let's get on to the film uh, of today. Um, Day of the Outlaw. Um, I, I got a quote here, uh, which is quite interesting. Leo Tolstoy. He once said that all great literature is one of two stories. A man goes on a journey or a stranger comes into town. And <laughs> Day of the Outlaw basically has both. So yeah. um, it's interesting. Uh, I think uh, this was Andre the Tot's final Western feature film, uh, starring obviously Robert Ryan as Blaze Sterrett, the ruthless cattleman in conflict with the homesteaders in Wyoming. Uh, which is basically put on hold as a band of thugs ride into town. Um, but what was your kind of uh, your first impression when you watched this film last year? It was a strange one because I've probably watched God knows how many westerns over my life. I can't probably I, I can't actually count. I went through a phase I think a few years ago where I was absolutely obsessed with them and. It's interesting when you watch a film that falls into a generic category, i.e. <laughs> the Western here, that you watch it and suddenly feel like you're watching a genre or that you're watching a genre you're very familiar with, but you're seeing something that you're not familiar with at all. You feel like you're watching something completely new. Yeah. Um, I had it again slightly when I watched um, uh, The Hateful Eight. Which was like okay. kind of an epic western, apparently, mm-hmm. and I was—I I actually genuinely didn't know anything about the hate flight going into it, and I thought it was going to be this kind of spaghetti western, kind of you know the good, the bad, and the ugly type thing. And it wasn't—it was just a kind of basically almost like a—it was almost like a play mm-hmm. set in one room, and yeah, it was a western and it was epic. And with Day of the Outlaw, I was kind of. All that, all, I, I kind of obviously assumed that it was a Western. And then when I went into it, I thought, oh, this looks a little bit like a TV movie yeah. during the opening. <laughs> during the opening, And you suddenly felt like you were jumping into a story that you felt that was started an hour ago. Because you've got this kind of Robert Ryan character who's kind of threatening to kill anyone for daring to so much as look at his barbed wire fence and his, his land. <laughs> And it, it kind of went in a direction which I, 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 did, I didn't actually see coming. And I was kind of like totally transfixed by it because it didn't seem to do what I thought Westerns do or behave in a way which I thought Westerns normally behave. And it didn't surprise me at all that this film wasn't a particularly huge um, success upon when it was released. It was made in an era, it's like 1959, Hollywood had got massive by this stage in its life. This mm. was the age of the epic. This is the age of cinemascope. It was the age of, you know, huge vistas. And you don't have that with Day of the Outlaw. 
it seems to kind of go back to a more simple form of storytelling. It's very much set in, well, I guess it, its locations don't define it. Its characters mm-hmm. define it. Its moments between characters that actually define it. And I, I found it quite revelatory, I have to say. Hmm. Interesting. The first like 15 minutes or so it really led me down the wrong path, so to say, where it kind of builds as this massive threesome drama between Blaze and Crane and uh, Crane's wife, Helen, using that whole like fence business as an excuse for his jealousy. Um, and he really comes off as quite like a heartless douche. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like he's so full of pride that he can't see right from wrong. Oh, he's going to kill everyone. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. And he, he's like so steadfast in his mind. Um, and you think this is all like leading to this massive confrontation between these two men, but that never really happens. And you have that lovely bottle scene where you're just waiting for it to drop and then mm. it doesn't, so... Yeah, but before we start talking about the film in itself, I would just say that Andre the Toth, I don't think I've, I'd heard of him before this release. I would say he's a mostly forgotten filmmaker until like recent home video releases. Yeah, I mean, I've... I noticed one thing about him, he's been married seven times. <laughs> Surely you learn after marriage number two, possibly this isn't for me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what does that say about someone? I mean, I'm not being like a traditionalist here or conservative, am I? But seven times, Jesus Christ. And then when I found that little nugget out, he, he seems to be kind of like a... I think sometimes he's on that peripheral of Hollywood. I mean, he seems to have made enough films, mm-hmm. but he seems to be kind of like... I don't, more, more like a character in yeah. Hollywood. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, I, mean, I can see that. He, he, was, he was married to... Um, was it Veronica Lake? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Then, probably about two months if he was married seven times. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, he, 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 and there's another little fact I learned about him as well. But I think he was like actually blind in one eye or something like that. And he couldn't yeah. actually, he couldn't see in 3D. He made a 3D film. Oh, wow. Yeah, he made that House, House of Wax. House of Wax, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he, he just seems to have this crazy life. It's like, <laughs> where does this person come from? You know, who, who thought giving Andre de Toth half a million dollars to go and shoot a western with Robert Ryan well, seemed like a good idea but <laughs> he came from Hungary actually where he, he's a lawyer from Hungary and he became <laughs> that qualifies him to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah he became involved in like the theatre as a college student and then he kind of segued into the film industry and that's where he met or he went to England and that's where he met Alex Corder and then he moved to Los Angeles in 42 I think and he often just wrote as um, an uncredited scriptwriter, uh, and that kind of supplemented his directing income and he basically he preferred to work as an in- independent so he, i think he financed most of his films by himself yeah he as i understand his book he actually works on um lawrence arabia uh, yeah okay and as superman on superman as well yeah so i mean uh, <laughs> yeah he it, yeah i mean he sounds like someone the Coen brothers should make a film about. Absolutely. <laughs> it's this kind of like crazy dude who just kind of walks around. But I mean, like a hot sucker proxy yeah, type Yeah, definitely. Character. I mean, he just seems, he just seems, it's just totally random 
person <laughs> who seems somehow get away with making films. Um, I'm kind of interested to watch more of them. I've seen House of Wax. It's pretty rubbish, to be honest. But yeah. Um, but I noticed he made the Mongols. I which heard of that I, I thought was going to be the the rather brilliant one with um, John Wayne in it, which I think is actually okay. Genghis Khan. But no, that looks pretty great. Again, I, I'm not sure it's that get hold of a ball. But um, yeah, interesting guy. He looks crazy as well. Yeah, with the eye patch. And yeah, yeah. I, this this is it. We need. We need a film about him. Yeah, we do. Someone needs... I can't believe there's not a really interesting story about Andre de Toth out there. Yeah. But we have these, this um, bottle scene where you're just waiting for it to drop. But then the film takes this turn with the introduction of the gang. And suddenly there's no more... Or the threesome drama it's put on, on the back burner. And we have a film about a town being held captive by a group of bank robbers, which is definitely another Western trope. Yeah, well, I mean, what you have is really a piece of... It's good It's good screenwriting, sorry. Which, is, like mm. I said to you, I think you come into this film and you feel like you've missed half an hour somewhere yeah. along the line. There's another story going on here. And you obviously have this Robert Ryan character who he is a pretty despicable person. I mean, he's threatening, he's threatening to... I can't even work out what his problem is, really. It seems like there's enough land going around for everyone to kind of, you know, to have their own little slice of it. But he's kind of... He's threatening to kill them and all this. And then he suddenly turns up and what happens? I think the film kind of holds a mirror to the character. Because mm-hmm. he's the one who has this kind of... Uh, this presumed ownership of this town who is acting like an absolute thug and then suddenly the thugs turn up and assume ownership of the town yeah and it kind of gives him this i think it holds a mirror to him where he thinks to himself right i need to kind of right this wrong and what you have really is a film a western where i can't recall being as, as uncomfortable as i felt watching day of the outlaw Mm. especially in the fact that you have that awful scene where the women are being made to dance. Absolutely, yeah. It's horrible. I mean, it's 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 genuinely shocking. And I, I, I can't recall a Western of that era of which mm. I've seen, which has made me feel the same. And it's really interesting because, Blaze, you think of him as the villain in the beginning, where he's threatening to kill everyone, as we've been saying. And now he's suddenly placed in this kind of strange position of suddenly wanting, or he's being pushed to be the hero of the film. And what do we expect heroes to do in Westerns? We expect them to, like, sort it out and shoot it out, really. Uh, He's kind of the lone gunman that rides into town. Well, I think it's a... I mean, have you watched many Robert Ryan films? Uh, No, not Robert Ryan, no. Because... That's an interesting thing, really, because Robert Ryan is either an utter bastard in his films, mm-hmm. or he's the good guy. He, he and, and when he he's probably more effective when he's he's is a bad guy. But he, he seems to be. I've always preferred him when he's kind of, I suppose, on the darker side of things. Yeah. And what I loved about this really was the fact that 
I think I associate him with being a bad guy. And when the film starts, you think, right, okay, you know, this is this this is Robert kind of doing what Robert does best. He, yeah. he reminds me a little bit of, um, you know, when Sidney Pollock used to play bad guys. Mm-hmm. That somebody does it kind of like without being a snarling evil person. <laughs> Sidney Pollock played the creepiest bad guys ever, and he did it with just simply having a look on his face yeah. and an expression. And Robert Ryan does that really well. And what Day of the Outlaw does is that it it puts you in a strange position because obviously he's a womanizer. He's a manipulator. He is threatening. You don't even know the backstory, really, mm. of why he's, he's, he's you know, being so hateful to these people. Well, you sort of get some of it uh, during his conversation with Helen in the yeah. beginning. That... He's, he's basically forcing this woman. Yeah, to, absolutely. Yeah, he's, 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 he's not the nicest. But the film kind of makes you have to root for him in the end. Mm-hmm. Where, and it's it's a very morally ambiguous film, I think this, because you you, you kind of like you're trying to see what the kind of like the the resolution to it all is going to be. Mm-hmm. Like, wh- where are they going to be at the end of it? Who who's going to kind of come out of this for the better? And it doesn't... they're definitely not picturing what actually happens in the film. No, not at all. And. I, it's a strange one because I'm sort of waiting for something more to happen. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I felt the same way. No, yeah, and it it, it, it seems, not to say it's kind of underwhelming. I think it's just more no, no, un, no. It's, it's more underplayed, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like this is more like a even when the town comes in, you're expecting something more to happen, but it's more like a waiting game mm. where kind of these doomed outlaws they are their time is running out they're being pushed like further and further to the edges of society in every aspect both in a like social political way with the rising of the communities and and the cities uh, but also quite literally they're living on the fringes in the outskirts and it kind of falls in line with future revisionist westerns like the wild bunch where you're kind of signaling the death of old traditions yeah, totally. Because I mean, what what day of the outlaw? I I think I think what it does quite brilliantly. It's like you say, it's predating the revisionist western. But this isn't a time. This isn't a film that clearly defines the fact that you have, for all intents and purposes, he's the sheriff. Mm-hmm. He's the boss of the town, and you normally think of that as a virtuous. You think of the kind of the the Jimmy Stewart, you know. Yeah role don't you where it's the he's the beacon of virtue and you have it with kind of 310 to humor and films like that where you have this kind of exploration of masculinity mm-hmm. and this this way um jubal i think there's other criteria in this are actually jubal and 310 to humor yeah. but you have this kind of exploration of the fact that one of the things that the western does is that Quite explicitly, I think it shows you what a man should be, or what the kind of the role of a man in this world should be. They should be very virtuous, yeah. Even if they don't know it, they should be kind of like, especially films like, like I said, like Jubal and Three Ten to Humor. They, they're films which kind of 
they're, they're about men discovering what it means to be a man. Mm-hmm. And it's this kind of journey and you have the kind of the bad guys and they kind of set themselves up against them. And you see this very clear definition between good and evil, right and wrong. And in this, you don't have that. No, no. You have someone who is clearly extremely motivated by personal wealth and territory, Mm. who is literally willing to kill people for for no... They've done nothing wrong, these people. They, don't, they, haven't, they haven't committed a capital offence. <laughs> and yet he's adamant that that's what's going to happen to them. He's coercing someone. I mean, think about Shane. What a guy Shane is. He could have had <laughs> he could have had her any time he wanted. He didn't. This is like the old ego of that yeah, film. Yeah, if this guy was Shane, you'd turn up and you'd be like, uh-oh. He, he, he'd be, he'd bed that woman in seconds. He would not yeah. care. And he doesn't have that in this. And yet what you have is the fact that these guys turn up, these outlaws turn up, and he realises the fact that these that they're bad news. But the people that turn up, they're no, they're no worse or better than him. Mm-hmm. And that's why I find it quite strange and, like you say, revisionist. But it seems like a revisionist film made in 1959. I don't think it's like kind of like, I think this might be one of the reasons why it didn't do so well. I simply don't think people are ready. For it. Had this come out in the age of you know, Vietnam, I think it might have been received slightly differently. No. But it's, it's an odd one because you're seeing the trappings of a Western, but you're seeing the Western subverted in so many different ways. Another theme that is also subverted is like the theme of violence and nonviolence, where the the elements that really serves as the weapon of choice is not really guns, but it's nature. Oh, totally, totally. And, and obviously, considering the time it was made, you have the World War Two and its fallout that is still kind of present. There's like definitely something in the air here about piece where you have the civil rights struggle um with martin luther king jr uh, doing his thing here so yeah i mean this is again it, it comes back to compare this to the wild bunch yeah in fact you know not even the wild bunch but a lot of westerns violent you know, high noon for example is a film where the entire premise is waiting for violence you know, that violence is an absolute necessity for what's going to occur in this the effects of violence are all too apparent one bullet wound is causing all the grief because if this guy dies there's going to be absolute hell to pay for Mm -hmm. everyone and it's a strange one because it's a film that doesn't want to go down the hole of being of showing you mass violence and killing like a lot of westerns, they just instantly go for that, and this doesn't. And I think that's, an, that's another reason why, near the end, he he, as we can get to the end, but mm-hmm. he he's trying to sort of, yeah, like I say, use nature as opposed to the weapon, and yeah. the gun is as such an emblematic piece 
of you know, we associate it with the West. We associate it with kind of like the modernity of moving the the West you know, westwards, of course. But in this, it seems like people don't want to kind of resort to that. Yeah, definitely. And it, like the town, they are trying to deal with the problem as best as they can, but in a non-violent way. And Blaze, who's ready to shoot Crane in the beginning of the film, he has to turn to this like non-violent stratagem against the villains. And he also tries to appeal to the better nature of the leader, this Brune character, who kind of seems to have a somewhat respectable motive, uh, at least within the group itself, that he, he seems to be like the beacon of hope for, for the town, that if, if he survives, then everything will be all right. Well, he's not the moustache twirling evil outlaw, is he? No, he's not. Uh, you have one of those <laughs> in the group, but he's not the leader. Yeah. So. But I mean, it's it's a straight. It's just a completely strange film. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find on that perspective because people don't act in the way that you do, and obviously you have kind of like the maddened gang members who are just you know the whole thing with the women in this film. I mean, obviously the the role of women in the western is very much submissive. Mm-hmm. Invariably, they are. They're, they're either the whore with the heart of gold or they're the, the lonely housesteader who needs saving. And it's not so much implicitly there all on screen as it is in Day of the Outlaw where you have that awful scene where they're made to dance with the guys and there's this undercurrent of sexual violence that's going to occur and I, I, I think one of the things about it is, is one of the things that makes it the dramatic impetus in the film is the fact that if he dies you know the gloves are off in terms yeah. of what's going to happen to them and that's incredibly un- uncomfortable to watch mm-hmm. and it's played so brilliantly yeah. in the film where it's it's an awakening as well for Robert Ryan characters. He, he obviously acknowledges that if if he does die, mm. he's dead, and that something awful is going to happen to these women. He almost manages to see the fact that everything that he's been saying before about he's going to kill you if you come on his land, I'm going to put the barbed wire up, blah blah blah, and it suddenly seems like a kind of awakening for him mm. in so many respects. Yeah, we were kind of comparing this to Shane uh, just now. And the role of nature is also quite interesting where nature in Westerns, it often like it plays the role of the pure and the safe haven where the righteous people live, whereas the, the urban areas, it often is more like the shadier sides of society. And Shane is like an excellent example of this, where in the town you have these uh, shady characters, but where you have the pure values out in the fields. But Day of the Outlaw sort of flips this idea, and nature really becomes like a destructive force, um, serving as a partner for the Robert Ryan character and killing the outlaws. And you could also argue that the film takes a second turn in the final third where the jailers, the, the group of outlaws that came into town and held these the city uh, prisoners, now they themselves become prisoners caught out there in like the snowy wilderness. 
Yeah, and what it shows you is the fact that when you have people living on the fringes of society, invariably they will make their own rules and those yeah. rules will not be for the best. Um, you, you think of the kind of... Like, like, like I was saying earlier, in, that kind of in, in, in the Western, the, the town on the frontier is a kind of microcosm of everything that's good and bad about society. Mm. With Day of the Outlaw, you kind of get this impression that this is a town on the on the fringes of, of the world. That's everything that's wrong with mm. the world. And when they go out there into nature, it shows you how you don't have to get that far away from apparent civilization before it completely consumes you. Mm. Um, rather uncomfortably, I find, with this film, is that you can tell that those horses are being severely whipped. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I found that quite disturbing um when i was watching it again last night but there's just that bit where the horse is dying and it's rolled over on its side and they're just looking at the guy as if to say well you're fucked now yeah. that that's it yeah this is how tenuous the link is how tenuous it is between life and death out here mm-hmm. and it's interesting i find watching day of the outlaw because if you think of the Western, you think of the desert, you think of Monument Valley, you think of cactuses mm-hmm. and heat, and it doesn't give you that. You've got piercing cold and these rather incredible... I think it was shot in Wyoming, if memory serves. Yeah. Um, these you know, barren, huge landscapes. And what's always fascinated me about the Western and the history of America is that People generally didn't know really what they'd bought. I mean, when Thomas Jefferson, I think it was, he, he purchased the rest of America. They sent Lewis and Clark out on the, you know, to find out what, what they'd bought basically, <laughs> and they headed on out there and were like, "Holy shit! You know, this is pretty crazy out here. You know, there's some some, some mad stuff." And there, it was the, the great unexplored, and it was the unknown, and passages through these kind of wildernesses and these treacherous paths were the thing of legend or that you, you, you simply didn't know if they really existed mm. and he does that in the Robert Ryan character he plays on that he plays on this fact that he plays on the naivety of them but they can they, they might be able to find solace by simply heading in the in, in another direction by yeah. simply pushing out you will eventually find freedom and one of the things about the western is that it always comes back to bite you yeah I mean, the cinematography in this one is such a bleak and gloomy style where it seems much more aligned with noirs than westerns. What, what, what does it remind you of? What film does it remind you of recently? Because I can think of one. Absolutely Hateful Eight. It does remind me of that one. And also McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I think those were the two. And so uh, not, did you, were you not thinking about The Reverend as well? Yeah, possibly the end there. It definitely yeah. has some has a feeling of that one. And it's interesting because Russell Harlan, the cinematography, he shot Rio Bravo actually earlier that year. And this is such a far cry from that film. Yeah, no, totally. And this is, again, it's that, it's that subverting the Western, isn't it? If you see yeah. the, icon, the iconography and the conventions of the Westerns, you think of hats and you think of, you think of the saloon. You don't think about snow and you don't think about the piercing cold. Mm. And, you know, the... the Kind of dances with wolves was another film that came to mind. Strangely enough, when I was yeah. when I was when I was watching this, and it's 
it's a strange one, I feel, Day of the Outlaw. Mm. Because I can sort of see why it was kind of... I, I can sort of see why it disappeared and perhaps got kind of mistaken with a kind of, I don't know, like lower brow type of Western. But I think in the age of the kind of the... Like you said, like it's great. Such a, I'm so glad you mentioned the revisionist Western. Because through that kind of filter, I think it, it stands out to me as quite an important piece. Yeah, absolutely. You have some... It's like a very, there's a sparsity to it and a minimalist approach, um, a very effective one at that. But you also have some of these exquisite virtuoso shots where, especially as in the uh, bottle scene that we mentioned, where the camera tracks the bottle right until it yeah. falls, but I mean, also the dance scene. Yeah, I mean, I mean let's just go back to that bottle scene and stuff like that. I mean, that's brilliant filmmaking. Yeah. Totally, that that is absolute genius piece of how to build tension mm-hmm. because it instantly adds a ticking clock to the moment and the way the camera pans with it as well. And you, you, you again, you're expecting the huge shootout, aren't you? Yeah. The, 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 and it doesn't. It, you simply don't get that, and it, it's because the music as well in this film is quite sparse as well and it, it seems to me it's, it's a very much an economical film in that department and yeah like this nagging sense that there's in between the pauses and the silences there's something waiting to happen mm-hmm. it's a lot like watching a Hitchcock film I yeah. find the fact that he knows how to build suspense. Yeah, yeah he, just, he, he knows that in those little moments, like if you watch The Birds, The, the Birds is conceptually such an easy film to sell. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you have this kind of, you, the, the birds, you're expecting kind of like, you know, flocks of ravens to attack. And obviously that does happen. It, doesn't, it only happens for like 10 minutes in the entire film. The rest <laughs> of it is building up this kind of, you know, just, making you think so much about you know, what's going to happen and those little kind of moments in between. And I, I think Day of the Outlaw has a very similar effect. It just kind mm-hmm. of holds everything back yeah, and lets you think about the, what might happen as opposed to actually showing you what is going to happen. Yeah. I think that the budget of this one was quite um, strained. Apparently, he had changed his mind about where some scenes were to be shot and he was moving them from interior to exterior and then the money ran out. And the the scriptwriter, he sort of has been lamenting what could have been, but I feel like the sparsity of it all, the exterior landscapes, the feeling of isolation, the, the jagged edges of the production that we've been talking about, all this kind of contributes to what makes the film so good for me. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I it's again, it, it's unlike a lot of westerns. Mm-hmm. It doesn't play into that conventional canon of film, and that's, that's not to say that oh, yeah, all westerns are the same. Of course, they're not. Uh, but it's very rare, I think, that you find one which is so different. Yeah, and I, I feel like Day of the Outlaw you know, hits upon that. Yeah, I was talking to my girlfriend earlier today about sort of. What, what is a Western and how do we kind of define Westerns and how do we know what's inside and outside canon? And I think that's 
one of the most interesting aspects of Western genre for me is that you can't really set something as a rule because you can always find films that will discard that rule and still be a Western. Yeah, I think it's a film that plays by its own rules and happens to be set in mm. in, in the Western genre, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sort of carves up its own space in the genre of mm. Westerns. And yeah, when we talk about... You know, to go back when we talk about like Master Cinema and Criterion, and this is what, one of the reasons why I love Master Cinema, is that they've popped a film out there, which is different from anything else. Mm. It, it's not, you know, you da- my darling Clementine, it's not your high noon. It's something which I think stands out on its own in a genre of which there are so many. Mm-hmm. I think a double bill that would be quite nice with this one is Man of the West. We have two menacing Westerns with great, like, psychological heft to them. So, uh, and also um, the the character of Blaze, he kind of reminds me of uh, Clint Eastwood's character in Unforgiven. Yeah. Um, Kind of this minimalist, pared-down approach to being really angry. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, I mean, I've not, I hadn't heard of this film until it came out on on Master Sim. I'd never heard it mentioned in any, I've never heard it mentioned on any kind of, scholarly circles or anything mm. like that me neither and um i wonder how i wonder how widely viewed it was and how widely appreciated it was mm. because i i do see a lot of kind of tarantino-esque moments in it mm-hmm. and I, I kind of yeah it's a strange one yeah absolutely it's that little oddity that suddenly appeared to it yeah <laughs> Have you uh, had time to check out uh, some of the supplements or the booklet? I, I haven't actually read. No, I haven't actually read either yet, and I really should do. But yeah, I'm quite Me as well, uh, I've been in the process of moving uh, to a new flat, and uh, it's just been taking up all my time next to practice and work. And yeah, no time, sadly. But I seem to remember that the cover was looking quite nice. Oh, no, it's a great cover. It's sort of this, uh, it has this kind of pulpy feel to it. Yeah. No, it's uh, it was one of my favourite, really. I think, it, cover-wise, it was one of my favourites from last year. Mm-hmm. I always go on the thing, you know, would I have that on my wall? Yeah. And that's my criteria, you know, would you think? And definitely it was it was, it was a you know, beautiful-looking um, piece of artwork that I, mm-hmm. I, I certainly really enjoyed. And um, from what I understand, I think the cover is kind of like a, it's, I think it's like a reworking of the original poster for the film. Yeah, I think uh, the real poster was more, uh, didn't have such a colour to it. Uh, yeah. It was more like black on the sides. Yeah. 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 But no, definitely, um, yeah, beautiful piece of artwork. Yeah. Right, so we can start wrapping things up. Um, how's the process of um, 24 frames cost for you? Yes, I will have another episode out in the next week um, about Hitchcock Truffaut. So- ah, Excellent. The film and and uh, the rather brilliant documentary in the film that I saw. Plus, as well, um, I did a guilty pleasures segment last time, and loads of people have asked me for another one, mm-hmm. and I'm 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 horrified at the <laughs> film that I've picked for the next one. But I would say um, that it had a rating of three and a half stars by Roger Ebert, <laughs> and it made seven hundred million dollars. Oh wow! Yeah, so it's still shit. I'm terrible, so <laughs> I'm still utterly ashamed of it, but oh, never okay. mind. <laughs> Where can people reach you, Tom? They can find me at um, 24framescast.blogspot.com and at Twitter at 24framescast. 
Great. Uh, you can find us on criterioncast.com or moccast.blogspot.com. Uh, also, search for us on Twitter or Facebook and you should easily find us. Leave us a review on iTunes. It would be much appreciated to help us like grow in the charts and stuff. So. Yeah, definitely. I did read actually the other day something about the importance of ratings on iTunes and um, people leaving reviews. So yeah, I think we we do. I think we've got like a we've got a pretty decent rating. I, I think so. Yeah. yeah, I think there's two. I mean, if you're on the, there's like a US version and GB version. I yeah. think we, we're doing quite well. But if we do get more. Yeah, it really, really will help. I noticed downloads have been through the roof recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a letter from our hoster, actually, the other day, okay. saying, saying about the amount of downloads we had had. Um, <laughs> I, say, I think basically we were slowing down the server, to which I responded to the fact that I pay for an unlimited download amount. So shut, shut up, basically. But yes. yeah, so it's very encouraging to see the amount. I, I worked out you could have downloaded a Blu-ray in one month of the amount of downloads we had. So that's a good oh, sign. Wow. Yeah, so I'm pretty Great. happy with that. Great. Well, thank you for joining me tonight, Tom. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye.